0: Jude, and I'll be reading this morning verses 1 through 7. The letter of Jude, beginning at verse 1. Jude, a servant of Christ Jesus and brother of James, to those who are called Beloved in God the Father and kept for Jesus Christ, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Beloved, although I was very eager to write to you about our common salvation, I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt afterward destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not stay within their own position of authority, but left their proper dwelling, he has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. O Lord, once again we come to you humbly, knowing that there is no one in this room who belongs to you that has not been saved by your amazing and precious grace. And so we are dependent, O oh Lord, on your doing marvelous things among us. We look to you. We believe in you. Yes, we wrestle and struggle with sin but you have saved us by your grace. And so we cry out to you, Lord, for grace that comes to us even today to line our lives up with your law and to line our lives up with who, who your Son is, our Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. So we lift ourselves up to you, we're yours and we pray O lord that hearing our voice you might make our hearts and minds fertile ground for the truth of your word and i pray it in jesus name amen well last week will brother will brought us a very helpful message from luke chapter 13 two weeks ago I began a study through the New Testament letter of Jude. We looked solely at the greeting of that letter where believers are reminded of God's gracious, effectual call to salvation upon their lives, of his eternal love toward them, and the truth that they will always be kept for Jesus Christ. The emphasis of this first sermon was on the wonder of the sovereignty of God in salvation. And because what we have is all from God, contending for the purity of the gospel, as Jude urges us to do, is our great privilege and calling. And so this morning, as we continue to work through this letter and Jude's exhortation for us, To contend for the faith, we will consider verses 3 through 7. In these verses, we will see Jude's appeal, then Jude's concern, and finally, Jude's vivid illustrations. In verse 3, Jude makes a very strong appeal for Christians to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. We know his appeal was super strong because Jude initially wanted to sit down and write the first century church a very positive letter about the common salvation that he shared with his brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ. Instead, he found it necessary to go a completely different direction. Apparently, reliable reports had suddenly come into his living room to him about false teachers who were endangering the flock. And he was urgently compelled to exhort his brothers and sisters to contend for the faith, to contend with false teachers for the sake of the gospel. The word contend in verse 3 means to always be ready to vigorously defend the truth of the gospel, even if it means hardship or death. We just celebrated our nation's birthday. We are so grateful for the tremendous sacrifices that men and women have made to defend the liberties that we enjoy. So grateful for that, lives laid down. And it's a good thing to love your country but Jude is calling us to give ourselves away for that which is of supreme importance. He's calling us to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. He's not talking about personal faith here. He's not talking about subjective faith. He's not calling us to contend for subjective faith. Some people think subjective faith is all there is, but that's an awfully flimsy boat to ride in, because subjective faith can change from person to person. A friend of mine once said, it doesn't matter what you believe, as long as you're sincere, you can believe in and worship a tree, and you'll be okay, as long as you are sincere. Jude's not talking about subjective faith here. He's talking about a body of truth that is objective. It is the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. It is the body of divinely inspired apostolic truth that was completed and delivered in full to the New Testament saints. The Lord Jesus taught this body of faith when he was on earth in complete sync with Old Testament revelation. He delivered it to his apostles, and then the apostles and their associates delivered it to the saints without error through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit as God's final word to the church. That's what we hold here in our hands, and it was a laborious, precise Wonderful process for the church to determine the books that went into this canon. What we have here in the Holy Scriptures is the holy apostolic faith. It's the objective faith. And especially after Christ's resurrection and ascension, the apostles and many others gave their lives. In death, contending for it. Glory to God. The concept of the faith coming from God to the apostles and through the apostles to the church should sound very familiar to you. 1 Corinthians 11, about the Lord's Supper, Paul said, for I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you. It's an apostolic faith. It's an objective faith. And it's all about God's eternal purposes in Christ to save a people who will worship him and love him and serve him and bear witness to him to a lost and dying world, and if necessary, to contend against dangerous false gospels that threaten and confuse and allure and divide the church of the Lord Jesus Christ. Picture Jude with a quill in hand, ready to write some uplifting, wonderful, comforting note. his audience about Jesus and their common salvation in him, and then suddenly he's jolted. He is compelled immediately and forcefully to exhort the church to contend for the faith once for all delivered to the saints. But what is Jude's specific concern? Yes, we're called by God to contend for the purity of the gospel. That's his appeal to us, to you and to me, for all here, young and old, who name the name of Christ. But what's the specific nature of Jude's concern? Verse 4. Certain people have crept in unnoticed, who long ago were designated for this condemnation, ungodly people who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Toward the end of Jude's short letter, beginning at verse 17, he says, Remember, beloved, the predictions of the apostles of our Lord Jesus Christ? That in the last time there will be scoffers following their own ungodly passions? It is these that cause divisions. And what he means there, it is these that cause divisions in the church. They reach into their pockets based on ungodly passions that they have. And they pull out a subjective faith and they push it on others. But Jude says to the church, But you, beloved, build yourselves up in your most holy faith. Young people, good looking teachers and youth ministers. Don't cut it. Exciting presenters that razzle and dazzle, don't cut it. What is their message? What is their message? If their message is what you've learned to be here, then we don't mind the little razzle-dazzle, do we? Is there a message true to Scripture's teaching about the covenant of redemption and the covenant of grace? Is Christ central throughout that message? Are sinners... Saved by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. And what does their message teach about what God immediately begins to do so graciously once he saves his children through faith? Do they teach that he begins to slowly, little by little, grow them up in their most holy faith as they attend to the word and acknowledge him as master and lord is that what they teach the false teachers were teaching that it did not matter what christians did and that god's grace could be used as a license for sexual immorality The Greek word in verse 4 translated sensuality in our ESV Bibles means to live without any moral restraint in the area of sexual behavior. It could have been translated licentiousness. Those who pervert the grace of our God into licentiousness. They made it a license to sin. The false teachers taught that God's grace gave confessors a license to sin. And of course, God's word clearly teaches against this. Galatians 5.13, for example. For you were called to freedom, brothers, only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. 1 Peter 2.16, live as people who are free, not using your freedom as a cover-up for evil, but living as servants of God. Speaking to Christians at Corinth, the apostle Paul said, flee sexual immorality. God does not save sinners so that they can destroy themselves. God does not save sinners so that they can destroy others while they're destroying themselves. He does not save sinners so that they can then use his grace as a springboard to freely indulge their flesh in ways that are clearly commanded against in Scripture. Jude is saying here, contend against false teachers who are antinomian. That is, contend against teachers who are against God's righteous law. Contend against any teachers who cut the Bible in pieces and keep all the grace and throw out the imperatives. Jesus kept all the imperatives perfectly. He shunned sin and lived under righteousness and representing us as the second Adam. He won righteousness for us, required in heaven. Received through faith alone. He died. Paying the full price for our sins, satisfying God's justice. And because He kept the law perfectly, He covers us with His righteousness when we believe. So then, why would we not remind each other, as Jude is here, saying, strive daily to grow? Grow out of gratefulness and love for such a great salvation as this from such an awesome God. It's true. We could never be saved by the works of the law. What we do can never be a basis for God's acceptance of us. Galatians by 2.16, by the works of the law, no man is justified, but only through faith in Christ. But once God saves us through faith, his law then becomes our guide for pleasing him in growing obedience. And most importantly, God is working in us through this process. Philippians chapter 2. We are not alone, and he is the main agent. Our battle with sin is fierce, and we will never achieve sinlessness in this life, but we are called by God to be built up in our most holy faith. You all today should read with a heart of repentance, what our larger catechism teaches about the full application of the seventh commandment. And you should believe the Apostle Paul's teaching in Ephesians 2.10. You are God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus for good works, prepared beforehand that we should walk in them the reformers said it right we're saved by faith alone but faith is never alone it has marvelous results we're never sinless in this life it's a great battle but God begins to do a good work in us, and as we attend prayer and His Word, hearing His voice, so soften your hearts, we will grow in our most holy faith. It is our Christian duty, therefore, to firmly contend with any teachers who use God's grace as a stamp of approval to indulge the sinful flesh. Young people, look at the life of the Lord Jesus Christ. Does his life in any way look like what these false teachers are advocating? Look at verse 4b. There we see several things about these false teachers. First, we see their character. It's ungodly. And then we see their creed. Their creed is the grace of God allows you to sin all you want. Our personal war with sin is fierce enough, is it not? That's perverted. It leads to the destruction of our lives, our marriages, our homes, and our churches oh yeah, that's what the grace of God is all about. No. He breaks the power of canceled sin. He sets the prisoner free. His blood can make the foulest clean. His blood avails for me. And that's why Paul said in Romans chapter 6, are we to continue in sin, that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin's reigning power over us still live in it as if we've never been saved? Their character is ungodly, and part A A to their creed is, the grace of God allows you to sin all you want, and part B to their creed is, Christ is not their Lord and Master. Is Christ your master? Is he your Lord? We will sing in just a little bit. My gracious master and my God, assist me to proclaim, to spread through all the earth abroad the honor of thy name. John MacArthur was right, I think, when he said, Our task as ambassadors of Jesus Christ is to bring good news to people. Our task as soldiers of Christ is to overthrow false ideas. Contend for the faith, therefore, brothers and sisters, not because I said it, because God is saying it to all of us. The faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Well, Jude's appeal and concern lead us to three vivid illustrations of God's just judgment upon rebellion and unbelief to strike godly fear, first in Jude's listeners, to his audience first, and today in our hearts. All three of these illustrations are situations of great privilege that are met with God's just judgment because of rebellion and unbelief. The first illustration is in verse five. Now I wanna remind you, although you once fully knew it, there's a sense there that at least some of the people in the church to whom he's writing are, are vulnerable to these guys for whatever reason. Now, I want to remind you, although you once fully knew it, that Jesus, who saved a people out of the land of Egypt, afterward destroyed those who did not believe. What a special place Israel had when God... uh, redeemed them out of that slavery. And they watched plague after plague after miraculous plague. And yet, many of them still did not believe. They actively rejected the truth. And their judgment was to die in the wilderness, not being able to go into the promised land, which is a representation of Heaven. It blows our minds that Jude says Jesus was there. Jesus, he says, was the one who saved them out of the land of Egypt. In his pre incarnate state, he was there graciously and powerfully and redemptively moving, and they rejected him in unbelief and their judgment foreshadows a much greater judgment to come and if we don't keep that judgment in mind we will not be struck the way jude wants us to be struck about how important god in christ is and what's happened to us, and how important it is to maintain the purity of the gospel. Jesus is Yahweh. And they said no to him. And so many, well, actually a whole generation of Israelites died in the wilderness as a result of that. Well, Jude's audience was also in a Uh, privileged position in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ God was there in, in their midst if God ever does give us a place to go we will not regret this one because God is in our midst he's promised to be so and he is in our midst what a privileged position we are in To turn from him in unbelief and become apostate would reap a severe future judgment that the wilderness just foreshadows. The second illustration is in verse 6. And the angels did not keep their own position of authority but left their proper dwelling. He has kept in eternal chains under gloomy darkness until the judgment of that great day Is this referring to the time when some angels rebelled against God with Satan? That's how I understand it. Others think it could be referring to a particular group of angels that sinned by leaving heaven in the days of Noah in Genesis 6 to appear as men and do that which is not proper. Either one of these interpretations works. It illustrates the point. The angels enjoyed great privilege in the presence of God continually. And yet, because of their rebellion, the great day of judgment awaits them, and it will be severe. So covenant children, children, young people, Do not come to church week after week after week after week after week benefiting from God's special presence here among us and his blessing here among us and the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ preached and taught. Clearly, do not come here week after week only to rebel later in your life. Children, this is is a serious message to you. That's apostasy. And apostasy will reap a severe judgment for all eternity in hell. Today is the day of salvation. If you hear the voice of God and you're pricked in your conscience from sin, For sin, that's the Holy Spirit, children. Look to Christ and be saved. He answers all who call upon his name. He was judged for you, children, to save you from the coming judgment. Look to Christ in your heart. You say, I'm not worthy. You're right. I misbehave sometimes, Uh uh-huh. you got to be a sinner to have a Savior. Today is the day of salvation. Today is to say, you know what? I want to join the happy people around me and trust in Jesus Christ. And the same thing's true of everyone else here. Do not be drawn away by fleshly desires or any false thinking that appeals to the flesh, and really all false gospels appeal to the flesh in some way, the lust of the pride, pride of life, and greed. They all appeal to the flesh in some way. Don't be drawn away. Soften your hearts to hear God's voice in the scriptures so that you might more and more, as believers in Jesus Christ, Live in service to God and service to one another. And the third illustration is in verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding cities, which likewise indulged in sexual immorality and pursued unnatural desire, serve as an example by undergoing a punishment of eternal fire. The last illustration refers directly back to the emphasis of the false teachers. How could God's grace be used as a license for sin, for the pursuit of ungodly passions when Sodom and Gomorrah were were destroyed by fire for the pursuit of ungodly and unnatural passions, namely homosexuality? Sodom and Gomorrah were in the Jordan Valley. It was so plush. It was so plush that Lot said, that's where I want to go. And it was so plush that in Genesis 13, it's called the Garden of the Lord. Yet with all this privilege and luxury, the people chose to rebel against the clear light of nature described in Romans 1. Sodom and Gomorrah serve as a symbol of everlasting punishment of eternal fire for those who persist in pursuing sexual immorality, those who persist in pursuing unnatural desires in in unrepentance. According to the first century philosopher Philo, smoke was still rising from Sodom and Gomorrah in the first century. As God saved children Trusting in Jesus to save you from your sin and give you the righteousness you need for heaven. Acknowledge him for who he is. He is master and Lord. And be more and more, little by little, built up in him and the holy faith. Grow in your dependence upon him. Pray, make me more dependent upon you, Lord. Make me more dependent upon you. And you will grow. Sometimes you'll wonder if you're growing because the battle is so fierce. But you will grow, and you are growing. You are. And God is working in you to do his good pleasure. That's amazing, but always grow in your sanctification and grow in your perseverance in your faith by keeping God's severe but just judgment in mind. You know, it's so interesting to me that he tells us he's the brother of the Lord because James I mean, uh, he's the brother of James because James was a lot more well-known to him in the first century church. But he was also the half-brother of Jesus. He is so convinced. It wasn't until after the resurrection that he realized, my brother that I ate oatmeal with is Yahweh. And he's so hard-hitting because he's so convinced and he so loves Christ, his master, and he so loves the church. But remember, there's only one man who has ever kept the law perfectly, the Lord Jesus Christ. And it is as we look to him in faith that we are saved. We are not saved by what we do. We are saved by grace through faith in Christ. What a gospel we have today and he has you. He has you. He's got you. You are in Christ. And nothing will ever separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus, not even your sin. Let's pray. Father, seal this to all our hearts that we might be more wholly given over to you, loving you, serving you, loving one another, serving one another, praying for one another, praying for the lost, and being always ready to contend for the gospel that was once delivered to all the saints, once for all delivered to the saints. And we pray it in Jesus' name, amen. Well, I told you we'd be singing for a thousand tongues to sing, or at least I was quoting that one, you might have recognized it. Let's all stand and turn to number 291.